When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. Of all the people that I've had on this show so far, this is actually the person I've known the longest. Clark Van Deventer is a college friend of mine. I've admired his gumption and go-getativeness, if that's even a phrase or a word. I'm making it up now, trademark. He's just somebody out there doing amazing things, plowing his way into lifestyle design with his wife, his three kids. He has a new book out that talks all about his journey called Unlearning. And there are some key takeaways from it and this conversation that I know you're going to love. Before we get into that conversation, I want to say thank you again to Transpose for supporting this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, I've been talking about what Transpose is for, but you might be asking yourself, what can I use Transpose for exactly? Well, one of the best ways to find different uses for Transpose is to check out their templates library. What you can do is you can go into the featured collections section there, where you'll find curated lists of the best and most creative templates in Transpose. Templates for business, education, journaling, and especially, because you're a listener of this podcast, productivity. Once you find a template that you like, all you have to do is click copy, and that template will be copied to your library. And then you're ready to take notes or use it for whatever you want to use it for. Modify it even. Again, Transpose fills this kind of need for a more structured or maybe slightly more hand-holding or built-up pre-structured community kind of collecting version of Evernote. And I said last time (laughs) that it's fun to go through the library and pick out different things, but it is. It really is. It's it's enjoyable. So anyway, check it out, beyondthetodolist.com slash transpose. Jump in there, sign up for free, pick out your templates as you go through the featured collection, and let me know which ones you like, because I would love to know what you're using. Again, that's beyondthetodolist.com slash transpose. This week, it is my privilege to welcome the person I've known the longest of all my guests. Clark, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be on, Eric. So uh, Yeah, we go back quite a ways. Yeah, I, I was looking back through. I was thinking back through, and I was like, man, I've known Clark a long time. And, and just for the record, pronounce your last name correctly for the audience. Uh, Van Deventer. Clark Van Deventer. Van Deventer instead but of you, Van Deventer. The, yeah, you know what's funny is that um, in Santa Barbara, where I'm at now and where I lived for several years, there's a doctor by the same last name. Um, he pronounces it uh, Van Deventer. 
I say Van Deventer. But actually, if you go back to Holland, which is where we're from, they say Van Deventer. <laughs> nice. So, uh, well, we're both wrong. I, I say Van Deventer, but it's a family tradition of pronouncing it wrong. So, <laughs> Well, so you and I go back to our university, our college days back yep. in I – th- if I had to guess, I would say I met you. You were a freshman. I was a returning sophomore in my second – no, that's not true. You were a sophomore. You had already been around for a while, I think, and it was my like second sophomore year or something. Anyway, we met in Jerry Pattengale's late night history class. That so was, I would so yeah no I think I, I would have been a soft, I would have been a freshman maybe well maybe you were I don't know all I know <laughs> is at the time we didn't really like hook up and come become like super close friends but that's when we met but then once we started circulating in the same circles of friends. Right. That was when, you know, and so all of this. And was then you, and then you two is in there somewhere. Yeah. 1998, 1999. <laughs> and then the band U2, which <laughs> unites everyone. So I look back and I'm like, of all the people that I've either known or talked to on this show, you're the one I've known the longest. And so your story, your backstory is really. I don't know. It's more meaningful to me in some senses because of the fact that like I knew you when and then you started to go off and do some of these unique things. And so like uh, our generation kind of did is when you went off and graduated, we all kind of lost touch to a certain degree, yeah. not uh-huh. not dropped off the map. But we all kind of until Facebook came back around and, you know, right. united us again online because MySpace wasn't for that. Come on. <laughs> um, you were out in California. And you got busy doing a bunch of different things. Start by just informing me where you what you started doing out there, and then we'll sure. walk through this timeline a bit. So, so yeah, I um, in college I got hooked up with the organization that owns and operates and is preserving the home of President Ronald Reagan. So, like other presidential properties, like George Washington's Mount Vernon or Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, uh, President Reagan's ranch is is being preserved in that same tradition. And when I graduated from college, I I really took what was for me, as you know, a dream job. Moved out to Santa Barbara. Um, I loved Ronald Reagan and uh, spent a number of years at the Reagan Ranch, rising really from uh, entry level employee to finally uh, deputy director of the Reagan ranch. And my job really was, was working with our donors. Um, I raised big bucks and, you know, asked for six and seven figure gifts from philanthropists to help preserve the ranch. And then, uh, left there. It's actually been over seven years now since I left there and went through a series of entrepreneurial efforts that had, uh, either they were somewhere between failure and moderate success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then of course, partly that, uh, Failure and moderate success into running for Congress in, <laughs> in um, the 23rd Congressional District in California. Okay, so let's let's back up for just a second because I think one of the things people need to realize is the one the type of lifestyle, quote unquote, that you were living as an employee uh, in that most let's say in the largest W two paycheck season of your life. Yeah. (laughs) And then also let's parlay that into talk a little bit about that, but then then parlay that into uh, when you met your wife, because that's a key piece here as well. Okay. Well, yeah, I had a good life in Santa Barbara. I made good money. I mean, if you're asking people routinely for 
uh, five, six, seven figure gifts, you're, you're bringing in, um, if you're raising that kind of money, yeah. you're going to make good money. So I, I made good money, but it wasn't just the money I made. It, we had a really good life. Santa Barbara is uh, one of the uh, most primo places to live in the United States, not just for its beauty, but the Santa Barbara lifestyle is really unique to anywhere else I've ever been. I mean, this is a place where there's a farmer, a huge farmer's market seven days a week, 364 days a year, you know, and just the, the, the lifestyle, the music, the culture, and we got to do it all. And then, of course, by way of my job, I, I had a bit of status, um, notoriety in the community. And, and when I traveled in certain circles, um, sometimes I was infamous, I guess, depending <laughs> on where I was traveling. Well, you, you knew because of the position you were in, you knew about certain key players that became political players later on down the road years before sure. they actually, any of, any of the rest of us heard their name. Yeah. I mean, you so. go back to, I talk about this in my book, you know, and, uh, Sarah Palin was uh, when John McCain picked Sarah Palin to be his vice presidential running mate. Every, no one knew who Sarah Palin was, uh, but I had known her name for several years because when she was first elected governor, I was like, "Oh, who's this Sarah Palin?" And they were like, "Oh, she's probably going to be the next vice presidential candidate." <laughs> that's you, know, just, you know, that's hilarious to me that, that like you <laughs> knew two or three years beforehand, and then yeah, yeah. it's just insane. And, and so you're living this life. You've got this cost of living that kind of requires you to bring in or have yeah. that kind of a, you know, a paycheck. So, and that's yeah, we very were, different now and we'll, we'll get to we, that, but we uh, made a lot of money, but yeah. we spent uh, even more. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we had a big nut to crack every month. We bought a, a, a home in Santa Barbara, right at the peak of the housing bubble. And, uh, we were, um, yeah, we were making a lot of money, but boy, uh, we were spending it too. <laughs> so when was it in this period? I know you're talking what oh five oh six somewhere in here. You started to get a little bit. I don't know if the the right word is disillusioned or just discontented with with that incongruency. With you're making all this money, but you're also spending all this money, and you. It's not exactly the dream job you thought it would be, but also you had met your wife and even had something pretty major happen on one of your first yeah. dates. Yeah, we had, I mean, that <laughs> was really, it's funny, it's fun to say it was our first date. It sort of yeah. was. Yeah. You know how it is when you're first seeing someone. Well, you, it's, you, it's the date that you now celebrate and there's a reason. Yeah, I mean, we had we had been seeing each other socially. We had the same friends, but there was this one particular day that we had we had really spent the entire day together. And it was really, it was really our first date. I think we would have called it our first date, even if it hadn't ended the way it ended. <laughs> but we'd spent the whole day together, and then I lived in a house on the bluffs in Santa Barbara, overlooking the ocean. And there was a block from my house. There was an overlook where a lot of people would just go and kind of hang out and and you know look out at the surfers go in the morning to check the surf. People go out, you know, and just look at the ocean. It's a beautiful spot. And we sat out there and had our defining the relationship talk. And then it was about midnight. It was like, okay, it's, you know, it's a Sunday night. We both have to work tomorrow. Uh, we should probably call it a night. And we walked out to the edge of the cliff just to kind of, you know, take it all in. Yeah. One, one last look out over the ocean and the stars. And we didn't realize it, but we walked out to the edge and the ground that we were standing on there was no ground beneath that ground. <laughs> and, 
and uh, it had just eroded underneath it. And when we walked out to the edge, the ground beneath our feet uh, began to give way. And the next thing we we just we both realized we're we're falling. <laughs> now, how 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 high is this? It was ninety feet. Jeez. So um, I don't remember. My last memory was realizing we're going to fall. That's the last thing I remember. Monica remembers the whole fall and remembers thinking, "This is it. This is this is how I'm going to die." And she jokes now that she said, and I didn't have that whole like life flash before my eyes thing. She's like, which I should have known then that I wasn't going to die because my life didn't flash before my eyes. <laughs> but yeah, it was a serious fall. It's, it's a funny way to introduce or announce to the world that you're dating. Right. Um, I remember my, my boss because I had, you know, I was living out here. I didn't have any family out here. And my boss had actually come to the ER that night. And um, he came in late the next morning. He said, hey, everyone, Clark was in an accident last night and, and uh, he fell off a cliff and uh, with his girlfriend and everyone said, well, Clark has a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the part that stands out. <laughs> it's not, how is he? It's like, Oh, he has a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I, so, and you go into much more detail and in the book. And, uh, the thing that hits me though, is that this was prior to you leaving the Reagan ranch. Is it not? Yeah. It, quite a bit prior. I mean, really it was before I had even come near the peak of my, so you're uh, still on your way up. Still on my way up, for sure, at, when when we fell off the cliff. Do, do you think that this kind of had some sort of a pivot moment, even if you weren't consciously aware of it? It suddenly was like, um, I almost died. What am I doing with my life? Well, I, I mean, I think that – I don't know. For some reason, I've always lived with the sense that life is – fleeting and life is precious and you've got to seize it, you know, and you've got to live, you've got to live big. I've, I've always had this sense. I think if you talk to my old high school friends and probably you, you can attest to yeah. when oh, I was yeah. in college, yes. you, you have to, you have to live. It's always been my penchant, you know? And well, let me tell you, falling off a cliff <laughs> will only accentuate that, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, you do get this sense like, okay, I'm, I'm here. Like they're, I'm supposed to do something with my life. And it is hard sometimes. I mean, look, it's been, um, we fell off the cliff in 2002. So it's been a long time. Okay, uh, yeah. it's hard to live with that every day. You know what I mean? But my wife and I actually do typically have a party every year on the anniversary of the fall and invite our friends. And it's just a chance, not, a, not only for us, but for all of our friends to remind ourselves like we're here, <laughs> you know, there's a reason that we're here. Um, we should live and we should yeah. celebrate that. So, um, but it definitely did bring me back to that feeling that, uh, I wanted to do something with my life. Like almost if the, if the job and, and your continued climb was getting you to this place of, you were getting more and more comfortable. That was kind of a pause button on that comfort. And from that point forward, I think even if you weren't conscious of it, I think that big uh, adventurous person that I know you to be wasn't happy, and you you continually got less and less happy. And in fact, then that's when you guys yeah, and, yeah. I mean, definitely we we I really was at the Reagan Ranch. I was bored. Now, not always. I had a I had a fantastic time. I I uh, I loved for many years. I loved my job. And I, I was passionate about it, but there just came this point where I was bored out of my mind. I wasn't passionate, and I, I really felt 
that I had to leave. You know, it's funny that my decision to leave, there's like two sides to it, where one side, it was like, it was really difficult. Uh, Maybe in part because our bare bones expenses, just living were, you know, $10,000 a month. And so I had a $10,000 nut to crack every month. And so in that sense, maybe it was hard and and I, and I had enjoyed it for a long time, but the other side of it, it was easy. Like it was almost obvious and there was almost no choice involved. I felt like I had to do it because I felt like if I didn't do it, and I I use this phrase in the book a few times, I really felt like if I stayed just to collect a paycheck, that I would be a shell of a man, that that there would be nothing left. And so people had, it made absolutely no sense. Uh, I had a great job. I made great money. um, I had um, status. I had a great life. And I was just like, I, I'm bored. I, I gotta, I gotta quit. I gotta do something else. And, um, and so then from that point, you kind of went and did, like you said before, you went into a couple of different entrepreneurial, uh, directions, including, you know, a cafe and a few other things and also trying or running for Congress and losing Yeah, <laughs> that season. Talk to me about that season. Were you just trying to find out, okay, what do I do next? Or did you have a plan? Well, when I, I quit my job to buy a cafe in Santa Barbara and it was a complicated deal, which uh, took us quite a while to put together. Uh, and as we were doing that, I was burning through savings um, at, at the rate of $10,000 a month. And um, the deal ended up falling through the, we were going to, the cafe we were going to buy ended up being sold uh, to another buyer who came in at the 11th hour with a deal that we couldn't touch. But I had already on the side been consulting, uh, really kind of doing consulting with other organizations um, regarding what I had learned and the skills I had picked up in my years at the Reagan Ranch. And so that was all of a sudden I was going to become a consultant. I was going to build a consulting agency. And uh, had actually that went quite well for a while. <laughs> and, and, and within a, a few months, I had, I had burned through my savings trying to get the cafe. My, honestly, my in-laws kept us afloat for a few months, but then my consulting business started to pick up and I was making as much money as I had made. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews 
to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com, to learn more. At the Reagan Ranch. Then the Great Recession lingered, and I started losing clients. (laughs) And then, coming back to Santa Barbara, this was 2000, my wife and I had been on a road trip, a six-month road trip. and as I was losing clients and we came back and I ran for Congress. Uh, but in running for Congress, I actually cashed out my retirement and li- then lived off of our retirement income or what I had saved for retirement, lived off my retirement uh, while I was a full-time candidate for Congress. What I didn't realize when I did that is sure. It sounds like uh, really dramatic, that I cashed in my retirement to run for Congress. It's like, wow, I went all in. I, yeah. I literally did. But what I didn't understand at the time was the bigger uh, financial risk was not cashing out my retirement. It was going nearly a year without any irons in the fire professionally. So, you know, you, you, you think about it. If you're a, if you're sort of a consultant, a freelancer, you know, someone who's just, sort of a self-employed entrepreneur, like you've always got to have things cooking, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and then slowly those things will come in or some will and some won't. But I went a year without doing that. And so when I lost my election, I was out of money. I, no longer did I have a retirement that I could fall back on. And I had gone a year without cultivating any work. And so not only was I now out of money, but I had no idea what to do next and really no prospects uh, for what to do next. Wow. Now, so is, if I'm not mistaken, this is the point where then you guys end up living in your in-law's garage? That, that's right. <laughs> and how long was that and what is that experience like? Well, again, two sides to it. Um, one was a relief. We were so beat up. We were so down. Um, we were so broke. It wasn't just that our house was empty and our cupboards were empty, but we really felt like the home was empty. Like it wasn't ours anymore. Life, it was bad. But I remember just being like relieved to move in to my in-laws garage. Like, like I didn't even, we didn't know where we were moving, but at least we were like in terms of moving forward in life, you know, obviously we knew we were moving into the garage, but we didn't know like what this meant for our life, but at least we were moving. Like we, we weren't sitting in the house anymore. Like it was like, okay, well this is the next step in our life. At least we're taking a step. Uh, I know that may not make sense. Like, well, isn't that a step back (laughs) Uh, moving into your in-laws garage? But I remember being relieved. The other side of it is I was, I remember being really ashamed and nobody, very – well, not nobody. Very, very, very few people knew that we were going through what we were going through. Uh, so we spent six months in the garage. Then we moved up to Tahoe where my wife's grandfather had a cabin uh, that we could uh, stay in for a winter. And 
it wasn't until even after that then we finally did we moved to Tahoe we rented a house in Tahoe as we started to get our our feet under us again and make money um which we it was a clumsy process in learning how to make money but so it was a, probably a year after we moved out of the garage that I wrote a blog post <laughs> about what we had gone through and sort of the thought process that we went through as we lived in the garage and I like so many people who were friends were like I had no idea um because I really did retreat from uh so many friendships because I was embarrassed that you know one day I was a rising political star and a candidate for US Congress and literally two it was within 2 months of losing my election that we were living in my in-laws garage man there was some deep process going on though during that garage and that that cabin time and a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know one you you'd let yourself kind of wallow in a sense and and rightfully so but then also you were getting more honest with yourself as well as with your wife and the two of you just starting to communicate and say what's possible and even saying out loud what do we want yeah well you know my book is called unworking and people say like what is unworking and it's like well it's it's not not working um it's putting work in a different place in our lives and then if if work's going to be in a different place in your life that probably means i think we're moving away from this idea, and if you remember, I mean, this was like our generation. This was huge for us, like when we were college students. Right. Like, like, what is your life calling? And getting a job that is your life calling, and because you got to get on that track and stay on that track. Right. And this was like, well, no, my, maybe my job's not my life calling. <laughs> maybe my life calling is to to be a husband, a father, a friend. Uh, maybe my life, the the. The, the most beautiful thing I have to produce from a work standpoint isn't actually what I'm going to make the most money doing. Maybe it's a side project, uh, side hustle or whatever. But if, if we're moving work out of this lofty position in our lives, then what are we going to fill that vacuum with? You know what I mean? And so to me, what my book is really all about, it's helping people, and this is the process I went through, helping you figure out what it is you value most in life so that you can then arrange your life around those things. Mm-hmm. And that was what Monica and I really began to do in the garage. You know, what do we value in life? What do we want life to look like? And Monica really before me realized that didn't equal me going to get a job. <laughs> and I, I do talk in the book about there being moments of desperation where I just, I wanted to go get a job. I just want, you know, I wanted the security of having a job again and making money again. But Monica, she sensed that getting a job wouldn't ultimately help us get what we wanted in life. And so for me, if my goals are to, uh, be able to spend winters in Lake Tahoe and ski 60 days a year. If I want to be able to get just as many beach days in the summer, if I want to be able to travel to Central America for six weeks or Thailand for three months, if I want to be able to do those things, it doesn't matter how much money you want to pay me. If I have to be present at a job in a physical location 50 weeks a year or more for 40 hours a week or more. It doesn't matter how much money you'll pay me. Me taking that job is counterproductive to my goals. So you want to pay me a million dollars a year? It doesn't matter. 
because I'm not getting what I want in life. And so what I talk about in the book is most people say, I want to get the highest paying job possible. And then I want to, with the money I make from that job, buy a life commensurate to my salary. Right. What I say is no, (laughs) figure out what you want life to look like, what you want your time to look like, how how you want your life to be structured, and then go find a job that will help you accomplish that. Instead of just chasing dollars, you're, it's all about lifestyle. Yeah. So you guys, you started off on this journey. You, you get to this point where suddenly you're starting to realize, wait, we can design our own lifestyle. And then other people start to see what you're doing. And even the, the guy that worked at Netflix is like, hey, how are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and we started our blog, familytrek.org. It was really like uh, – it was a family travel blog uh, about our travels and then people started asking, well, like, how do you do it? How do you pay for it? How do you make money? How do you have the, this kind of freedom? How are you able to go to, you know, Guatemala for six weeks? Like, you know, all these kinds of things. And so uh, our blog itself sort of morphed from being a family travel blog to being a, a blog about lifestyle design and, and how we do that as a family. Um, the Netflix story you're referring to, you know, this is me on a chairlift at a ski resort in North Star in uh, Lake Tahoe. And this guy's like, oh, you know, just when he finds out I live in Lake Tahoe, he oozes with envy, you know. And then when he finds out I ski 60 days a year, he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, if I could just figure out how to how to do what you do, you know, man, what a great life. And then I – well, I'm like, now I have a challenge. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, because I, I can tell talking to this guy that he's smart, you know. He can figure out his way around this world, you know? So it's like, well, what do you do? You know, like, isn't there a way that you could telecommute, maybe live in Tahoe? Like, would your company let you do that? You know, what are your skills? What's your background? You know, well, come to find out, this guy was one of the first dozen employees of Netflix. He's a senior executive. He, You know, he's got so much stock in Netflix. If he wanted to move to Tahoe and ski 60 days a year, he he could you could do it tomorrow, <laughs> you know, but th- this lifestyle design is, is such a foreign concept to so many people. You know, all he, all he could think about is the track that he's on. Now I will say it's easier to think about reinventing your life when you're living in your in-laws garage, <laughs> right. you know, like, okay, like we're starting from nothing. So, um, maybe we should build by design. It's hard to jar yourself into rethinking your whole life when, you know, I'm sure the guy has a beautiful home in Silicon Valley and can take expensive ski trips to Lake Tahoe. It's no problem. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that he's not happy and he's not happy with his life. And uh, I'm thankful that there are people who have built great companies like Netflix who have worked hard to give us the technology that we have. But it's still the idea of lifestyle design is so foreign I think the um, the most empowering and humbling thought for me in my life is that I can have whatever I really want in life as long as I really want it. Um, and it's empowering. So, so I okay, I, I can have whatever I want as long as I really want it. So if there are things that I want that I don't have, I have to be honest with myself and acknowledge that I don't really want it. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, okay, I – Clark, you have to be like, I, either you want it and you're going to go after it 
or you don't want it and you just have to admit to yourself that you don't want it. And you even kind of dig deeper and say, well, what is it? What's the reason that I do want it for? And then right. once you uncover that motivation or the root of that desire, you realize, oh, well, either, now I know why I do or don't want it. And now I can really decide. Yeah. And it's, and it's like you said, the, the digging deeper, it really is all about the why. I think if, if you can answer the why question, uh, you will answer the how question. Mm-hmm. It's all about motivation. Uh, but you have to have the motivation. Well, one of the things that you guys did was you realized that if you drastically reduce your monthly living expenses, then that frees you up to be able to do, uh, you know, that then the same amount of money coming in off some job uh, and this patchwork, as you call it, moving right. forward. Um, and and I want to talk a little bit more about that, how you and, and Monica have worked out this system now. Uh, and why you're making it work because it's it's really interesting. Um, yeah. But starting from that point of you've you've dropped your monthly expenses so low that then what you bring in is so much more impactful. <laughs> right. Like patchwork income is the idea that Monica and I have lots of patches of income. So we don't have any one source of income. It's not like I have a, a job or, you know, lots of people who even are, are nomadic or living – travel lifestyles, they, they, you know, they have like a gig, you know, um, that they're able to do, uh, remotely, which is awesome, you know, but for us, patchwork income is we have lots of sources of income coming from lots of different places. And there's a reason for that. But, um, yeah, the, the expense thing, if, well, when my monthly expenses, when that, that nut I had to cover every month was $10,000. If there was a gig that paid me $200, like, who cares? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like I got to make 10,000. Like yeah. I got to make $10,000 this month, <laughs> you know, before I even go out to eat. This is the basic yeah. living expenses, 10,000 bucks. So 200 bucks, who cares? You know, well, but when we've gotten our expenses down to more like, you know, the, the, the basic living expenses down to more like 2,500 or $3,000 a month, well, 200 bucks is something. You know, that's uh, – Especially when that's just one piece of kind of a it, diversified – or a diversification. A di- diversified portfolio yes. of income. But yeah, patchwork income works best when you have uh, less financial need. But I, but I think patchwork income, uh, maybe it's even more important when you have greater financial need uh, because you have lots of sources of income uh, and you're not dependent on any one source of income. But, um, yeah, it definitely works best when you pare down. And, um, for us, the, initially that was moving to Lake Tahoe. Uh, it's funny people in Lake Tahoe talk about how expensive it is to live there. Well, for us coming from Santa Barbara, it, it felt cheap, <laughs> you know, now you, you at Indiana, you know, it would, yes. it would feel expensive. Part but, of the reason why I am still right. Yeah. Here. Now, but, uh, when we first moved to Tahoe, this, when we first rented the house in Tahoe, it was a two-bedroom, two-bathroom house with a garage, nice little home, you know, backyard where the kids could play. It cost us $1,200 a month to rent that house, which seems like a lot if, if you're in Indiana. But coming from Santa Barbara, a, a comparable house put, would have probably cost us about $3,000 a month. <laughs> so um, that was a big one, moving moving to Tahoe. And then uh, lots of little decisions. So I say, well, um, 
you know, we like we well, for years didn't have cable TV or well, we pared down our cell phone plans to I had for a long time actually used uh, Pure Talk, which is a ten dollar a month plan. You basically get two hundred minutes a month, which I typically use like they were like my minutes. You would be at the grocery store and like your wife calls you to say, "Don't forget the diapers." Right. You know, that, that was, but the bulk of my talking and and use of my phone was all done on Wi-Fi. I had a, a Google uh, phone phone number and do all my calls through that and all my web surfing when I was on Wi-Fi signals. But we've, we've, we're splurging now with straight talk and I'm spending $45 a month. But it, it's all these little decisions. And um, so we love to travel. You know, I would love to have like cable TV in my house because I, I would love on a Sunday afternoon to just like have football on in the background, right. you know, even yeah. if I'm not watching it, love to just have it on. But, you know, how much does cable cost? I don't even know what it costs. Uh, 50 bucks a month it's, or something. It, it varies. I've looked at it a couple of times and always just been like, nope, don't care. Yeah. So Not worth I it. I can't travel very much on 50 bucks a month, but lots of little decisions add up. Yeah. And um, I, so I especially love you chopping wood and all the different reasons that that's the smart move for you. Yeah. So we, I, I talk about, uh, we, we heated our home primarily with a wood-burning stove, which was a process that took me really from May to November to work on, um, gathering the rounds, uh, splitting the wood, and then stacking the wood. And it took a lot of wood to heat our home all winter. But in that process, number one, um, I was saving money because I, I wouldn't have to have an increased uh, utility bill you know, to run the furnace all winter. Uh, number two, um, I didn't have to spend money at the gym <laughs> because uh, this was such an incredible physical workout for me. Number three, it was therapeutic. While I was working, I was thinking, so I didn't have to spend money on a therapist. <laughs> and then all along the time of this process, I knew that the sweat, all that sweat that I was that was coming out of my body, it was going right into our wood-burning stove. You know, that my sweat was going to heat our home all winter long. And then the final thing was, it was romantic. I've never had a furnace side conversation with my wife. <laughs> Let's go sit by the furnace, honey, with a cup of tea. Yes. <laughs> you know, but my wife and I would sit by the fire at night and it was romantic. So it, it was a good trade of my time. And now I could have uh, spent lots of money to just run the furnace all winter or I could have paid someone to just deliver wood to my house, but I wouldn't have gotten um, the other things that I got out of that. Right. So fast forward kind of to now, especially because you guys are getting ready to go on another trip. How is the setup currently? I, I believe you said it was something like you, you've realized that you and uh, Monica together building the patchwork together. It's not like it's, that's the other unique kind of thing here that I've seen in a couple of other really cool couples is it's not his career or her career or a career at all, really. It's just the work they both mutually do together to contribute to the patchwork. And together, you're still both working less cumulatively than one person and then having all that extra time for your family. Yeah. Your travel so, and all that. So, so first of all, with the patchwork, the philosophical uh, backing of the whole idea of patchwork income is that if a diversified portfolio is a good idea for retirement income, 
uh, wouldn't it be a good idea for income now? So if I have a job and I lose my job, uh, I've lost all my income. But if I have patchwork of income, if I have a diversified portfolio of income, that means that if I lost any one patch, the effects wouldn't be devastating. Now, if I lost one of my bigger patches, it would hurt. <laughs> yeah. But I would I would not go from – it wouldn't be a, a killing stroke. Exactly. But most of the patches that my wife and I work on, that we, we actually work on together. Most of our projects are joint projects. We're a team. And we sometimes – joke that our goal is together to work as hard as three quarters of one person. So, <laughs> um, what that, so what that means is if the, if a full work week is 40 hours a week, well, if, but if both couples were going to work, um, that would mean that what, one and both, let's just say work half time. Uh, I would be working 20 hours and she would be working 20 hours, but that would be the equivalent of one of us having a full-time job, which it's like you're just ships passing in the night. If I'm going to work on Monday and she's going to work on Tuesday, you know, like we're, we're yeah. still not seeing each other, you know? So we want to work less than, um, one. If, if together we can work three, three quarters as hard as one whole person, <laughs> we're happy. And there's an ebb and flow to that. There are times that we have to crank and dig in on projects to get them done. But then there's, so sometimes we go, so the goal is to work, on average, 30 hours a week, the two of us. Put together. Uh, put together. Yeah. Well, and one one observation I would say is that the, that 30 hours, you both are probably fresher or more eager or, you know, and again, so, there's seasonality to it, but you're not singularly, you or her or both of you, burdened by I'm, I've been ground down this week by my 40 hours, you know? Uh, I don't want to get all you know, <laughs> egotistical or whatever. But I, I just think the vast majority of people waste so much time at work. <laughs> uh, well, that's a given. Honestly. <laughs> you know? Yes. I, I mean, literally like, well, you're saying, I mean, cause what I'm, th what I'm saying is, is you guys are saying, you guys are probably strategically approaching that, you know, 30 to 40, 30 ish hours in a week with specific, very specific task minded, uh, you know, allotments for that time so that you're not wasting the time. Yeah. Every day is sort of day before vacation mentality, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's a perfect way to put it because I want to get everything done so I can ski or I want to get everything done so I can go on a bike ride with my kids or I want to get everything done so I can hike up to the top of this mountain. And so I really start with what do I have to do today? Like if I only did this one thing, you know, would it be a good day? Do I, is it enough to hang my hat on? And I really don't do much beyond that, <laughs> to be quite honest. Yeah. And it's worked, <laughs> you know, by simply doing the most important thing. And it's funny, you know, one of my uh, favorite podcasters, you know, we've talked about this, is Tim Ferriss. And Tim's podcast, you know, he talks about interviewing peak performers, the best in the world at what they do. And it's like, well, they're, they're peak performers – but we know who they are because they're working so darn hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm a peak performer and I'm achieving what I want to achieve in life. But you may not know who I am because I, I don't care about being the most <laughs> success, quote unquote, successful. You know, I, I think by my uh, definition of success, I'm pretty darn successful. I've, I've created the kind of life I want to create. 
And that, to me, is a measure of success that I care about. Um, it's not about how much money I make. It's about the kind of life I'm able to live. And um, I'm not as successful as I want to be. I want to do this, do my life better. Uh, and there, there's things, that, there's goals that I have yeah. and things that I can accomplish well, and, and uh, well, my, milestones I can cross. Well, let's talk about that because here's the thing. You guys, you guys again, you went – you kind of were upward swing and then downward spiral and then started rebuilding again. And in a different sense, unworking what you had learned and, and unlearning even, and then moved forward building and designing and changing, you know, your, your lifestyle. And it's never been perfect. I mean, you have so many different examples of, uh, so let's go for example, let's, let's pick one here. Um, What do you think is a good one? Maybe the iPhone one. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, like, everything's going great. And there's I mean, talk about that experience prior to that moment and then that moment. Sure. Well, we had this amazing life, right? Like, who else gets to um, this was back in 2000. Well, it's three years ago. So what year is this? So this is 2012. You know, we're on a six week trip in Central America, um, traveling around and touring and and it's and not just a vacation. It's not just a vacation. You guys are working too. Our while computers you're doing are with us. Some, some days I may work six hours while Monica's with the kids doing something, and some days she may work six hours, or some days we may each work thirty minutes. You you know, but we're still having to move projects forward. This would shock some people. Some, actually, Monica and I were just talking about it the other day, and we're like, I don't think we do that anymore. But we left on that trip with five hundred dollars. Well, and this is one of the things that you weren't learned from this trip, and then yeah, Thailand was a whole other story, right? So we we left a family of four <laughs> with kids ages. <laughs> they each had their birthdays down there. They turned five and three. A family of four with a five year old and a three year old left for six weeks in Central America with five hundred dollars. Um, but we, the way we looked at it, it was fine because we we had projects we were working on. We had money scheduled to come in. And, and guys, money. You guys did so much awesome stuff there, though. Yeah, it was an incredible trip. You know, we held macaws in our arms. We we got a private island for a day um, in the Caribbean. We Lake Atilan in Guatemala is beyond what I can uh, describe. And, you were roasting marshmallows on yeah, volcano. <laughs> yeah, roasting marshmallows on cooling lava. An amazing trip. But uh, some of the money that we were planning on coming in didn't didn't come or projects didn't work out. Some other clients were just being slow to pay and things were getting really tight. So tight. Actually, when we were in Antigua, we had gotten a tip on the previous place that we were at about this hotel. So we actually, this hotel that we went to in Antigua, it was nicer than where we would typically stay. And it was uh, $45 a night. <laughs> okay. So it was, but it was nicer than we, where we would typically stay. But we got the hotel there for one night because we got the tip that the person who ran the hotel may be interested in, we're bloggers and social media people, you know, maybe interested in having us help her set up a blog and some social media stuff. So we paid the $45, which we would typically want to pay like $30, but okay, let's spend the extra 15 and roll the dice. So when we went to her the next day and say, hey, you know, so-and-so in Copan was telling us about you and could we work out a trade? So we actually traded. We stayed at that um, hotel for several nights and Monica and I would just spend a few hours with the person who ran the hotel every day helping her set up a blog, set up Facebook pages and things like that. 
Um, but that's, it was, it was that tight. You know, we were, we were finagling. Yeah. And working. you were doing the, the bartering. Yeah, we were bartering, but, um, we were just budgeting so tightly and we got to the very end of the trip and we were like, we made it, you know, we're out of money, but we're going home and we can crash at Monica's <laughs> parents' house, you know, and we can let this, we can stop and rest, not just rest, but we can stop spending money basically and, and let money catch up, you know, and start coming in again. And, um, so we get to the airport and find out that we have to pay exit fees, you know, taxes for leaving the country. And we didn't have enough money. You know, we had, it, it was something like $30, $30 a person times four, 120 bucks. And I, I had like $40 left in some local Honduran currency. Uh, we, we just didn't have it. And we talked to official after official after official. And there, you know, death and taxes. I can tell you, the ta- you know, the only thing certain in life, the taxes were absolutely certain at that moment. We were not getting on the plane without paying uh, those fees. And um, so finally, with the plane boarding, I just turned around to the crowd because there was lots of people in line to pay their exit fees to get on flights. I turned around to the crowd and held my my iPhone in the air and said, "Does anyone want to buy my iPhone?" You know, and people are looking at me all confused and it's like, well, you know, um, I don't have the money to pay my exit fees. We can't get on the plane until we pay our exit fees. And at that point, it was a really humbling and powerful experience. People just started walking up and giving us money. And um, it all happened so fast because the the flight was already boarding. You know, it was like we just throw all the money basically at the guy, you know, working the counter and, you know, he's stamping and everything's fast and he's stamping and I'm turning around and trying to make eye contact with people and say thank you. And, and we were gone. And, um, so we were rescued by complete strangers who would never see us again, you know? And, you know, I really don't want to be in that situation again. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and this was three years ago and you've done other trips since and, you know, yeah, had so, other things happen, but so been set up yeah. and ready. So yeah, we, we, we've, we're making more money. We have more. The, the patches have increased. The patches have gotten bigger. We think we're, you know, we're getting to a better place and always, always seeking to get into a better place uh, without giving up the lifestyle that we want. Right. And, um, you know, when we were in Thailand, our daughter um, got sick. We have three kids now. And our when we left for uh, Thailand for three months. She was um, 16 months old when we left. Um, she got sick over there. This rash covered her whole body, and we went. We took her to a hospital, and uh, I was thankful that I wasn't worried about the money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're not broke. <laughs> you know, so like if some, if something happens, we're we're not like totally up the river. So yeah, there, there's been we, we've been a work in progress, and we're still a work in progress. We're not yet where we want to be, but it's it's interesting. You know, we're going back to Central America on Monday, and three years since we were last there, and uh, I'm thankful that we have come a long way. You know, over the past three years, but I'm also thankful that we've come as far as we've come without compromising and without giving up what was most important to us. You know, remember the, the whole point of 
my book, the exercise that we went through in the garage and in the cabin in Tahoe was figuring out what we valued most in life and then how to arrange our life around those things. And we've been able to come as far as we've come, um, I'm thankful, without compromising on the things that we value most. And that, to me, again, that's my definition of success. Yeah. I think, like a lot of people, although I've known you longer and have uh, lived through some of my own versions of some of this type of stuff, some people, though, they're listening and they're thinking, well, that's fine for you, but how do I even begin to remotely decide how to do anything different? You know, how do I uh, – I don't want to go as far as saying shack- unshackle myself, but to some people <laughs> it might feel that way. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? But how – you know, so somebody who isn't – hasn't perfected it but is definitely further along and so uh, somebody I would qualify as an expert in – experimenting in this lifestyle design what uh-huh. do you say to somebody what, what do you say to these people that come up to you and are like man how do you do this right well no you you have to buy my book and all the secrets are in well, there that's what i'm saying I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting you to give out a freebie so then we can tell people oh yeah there's also a book and they can get it this is how this works clark <laughs> you listen to the show no I, I would say begin by living epically today before you think about remodeling your whole house Think about remodeling your bathroom and you can train yourself how to do this on, on a small scale. So since we're talking about life hacking, you know, so don't, don't think about completely overhauling your life. Just go, well, how can I make my weekends better? How can I make sure that I'm spending my weekends doing the things that I, I want to, that I value most, that I want to do most? How can I make my work days, you know, more enjoyable? Towards the end of my book, I talk about in Santa Barbara uh, when I had my job and I had uh, the house on the Mesa, you know, I had this drive to work. There was one sort of logical, judicious way to drive and there was a slightly longer route along the Pacific Ocean, you know, that I could take. And in choosing to take the slightly longer drive along the Pacific Ocean, that's one simple choice I can make today to live epically today. So uh, what I tell people when they ask me, how do I get started? Uh, I, I say, don't think big, think small. Think about what you can do today. And, and I think a lot of people, when you really talk to them, they realize that we can get whatever we want in life. If we want a new car, we figure out how to get it. You know, if we, if we need a new refrigerator, we figure out how to get it, <laughs> you know? So uh, think about those principles on a small scale in lots of different ways, and you'll train yourself uh, over time how to do a, a massive remodel to your life. <laughs> yeah. Live epic today. Live epically yeah. today. That's the phrase, yeah. right? Man. For people who want to dig deeper, you have a book. It not just goes deeper into and elaborates on what you just said with thinking small, but also goes a lot deeper in a lot of different aspects of your story, which we really only touched on certain pieces of here. So the book's brand new. What's the book called? Where can people find it and find you online? Sure. Uh, the book is called Unworking. It's available uh, now on Amazon. You know, the Amazon's discounting it a bit, but it's thirteen, fourteen bucks in paperback or three dollars and forty nine cents on Kindle. That's uh, but, a deal. Yeah, you uh, three dollars and forty nine cents is a cup of coffee. Right. That's <laughs> <You know>? less. 
but you can also, you know, go to any of your uh, favorite, you know, bookstores, ask them to order the book for you, ask them to carry it, go to your local library uh, for that matter and ask them to have copies of the book on hand. Uh, you can find me online. My blog is familytrek.org or um, I'm on Twitter at Clark Vand and uh, search for Family Trek on Facebook or just my name, Clark Van Deventer on Facebook. Nice. Clark, thank you so much. I'm going to make sure this episode is up right about the time you're taking off for this next trip so people can follow <laughs> along and yeah. be reading on this, reading your current, your old adventures and starting theirs while you're on your next one. Sounds fun. Awesome. Thanks, Clark. All right. Thank you, Eric. So what do you think? Are you ready to create an income portfolio? And stop stressing out about having all your eggs in one basket when it comes to your income. I mean, seriously. One of the other key pieces, and, and I was glad that uh, Clark said it, is the fact that it's not necessarily the amount of hours you spend on your work or allotted for your work even. It's that most people don't get done as much as they think they do, let alone get done what they could get done in the time that they have to do it. Most of us could go a lot faster, a lot more focused, etc. Heck, that's why this show exists, to talk to people about how they do that and what they've found works and doesn't work. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I hope that you jump over and grab the book, Unlearning, and head over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com slash 114 to get links to all of those things and places you can find and follow myself as well as Clark. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I'll see you next show. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Learn how to podcast, theorize over the TV shows Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and Under the Dome. Laugh with our clean comedy, delve into science fiction and philosophy, learn critical thinking from movie reviews, and more at noodle.mx.